This week on Rotten or Righteous, we ask the question, I will not go. How do you like that? Back to the Rotten or Righteous Podcast, the only podcast that has graduated from Marauder to Wet Nurse. <laughs> it is I, Joseph Smith, back it's... from the Wild West. He practices <laughs> he practices dentistry. He practices dentistry in the Indian nation, also veterinary arts and medicine on those humans that will sit still for it. He's Luke Taylor. You give out very little sugar with your pronouncements. While he sat there watching you, he gave some thought to stealing a kiss, though you are very young and (laughs) sick and unattractive to boot. But now he has a mind to give you five or six good licks with his belt. He's Scott Judge. (laughs) Literally, as soon as I said that, a weed eater just whips right past my window. I heard it. Oh, I have thought about stealing a kiss a time or two. From Zach? No, from my wife. Safe answer. Now, you may be struck that I am shot, trampled, and nearly severed my tongue. And not only do I not cease to talk, but I spill the banks of English. I'm Zach Geiler. (laughs) Boo! I'm just thinking about you with a severed tongue. All right, but I wasn't going to do this because I have a pretty long summary today. But uh, oh, no. I, I, could, I couldn't pass this up for Scott's sake and our favorite listener. Uh, we have to have a very quick segment of uh, stupid news. Today's headline comes to us from CBS News. A Belgian farmer was annoyed by the stone in his tractor's path. He moved it and the French border. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Thus started the Hundred Years' War. (laughs) A farmer in Belgium inadvertently changed geography by moving his country's border with France. The farmer was driving a tractor and apparently got annoyed by a large stone blocking his path, so he slightly moved it. Another person recently walking in the forest noticed the stone had been moved. The history enthusiast knew it wasn't just any stone. It was there to mark the boundary between the two countries. The marker had moved about seven and a half feet, according to BBC News, effectively giving Belgium more land. He made Belgium bigger and France smaller. It's not a good idea. David Laval, mayor of the Belgian village of, uh, sorry, Belgian listener, Urquilines. <laughs> That's what we're going with. <laughs> hey, and shout out to our Belgian listener here real quick. If you can get to where this rock is, take a picture and send it to us at righteous at gmail.com. 
Uh, that move could have caused a problem for private landowners and neighboring countries, Laveau said, but people in both Belgium and France had a good laugh over it. I was happy my town was bigger, the mayor said laughing, but the mayor... <laughs> But the mayor of Bougenese Chirac didn't agree. The mayor of a neighboring French village told Lavaux du <laughs> Good night. The mayor of a neighboring French village told Lavaux du Nord, "We should be able to avoid a border war." BBC News reports. So that's good. <laughs> this could have been an international tragedy. White text and a black... Uh, let's get into our summary, I should probably say. I'm real good at transitions tonight. White text on a black screen tells us that the wicked flee when none pursueth. Proverbs 28.1 A soft piano version of leaning on the everlasting arms begins to play. And it is just beautiful. I will say right off the gate, if you are one of those people that do not think... Or that thinks that you cannot listen to any hymn... Uh, with instrumental accompany in any setting. I'm not talking about worship. I'm talking about outside of worship, clearly. I wasn't worshiping God watching uh, a True Grit. But if you are one of those people that uh, uh, say you cannot have musical accompany to any hymn, you will not like this movie, because that is all there are, are just recognizable hymns <laughs> being played with pianos and fiddles and a, a torture victim at the end, but we'll get to that. Um you know, I like that about this movie. I was like, what an interesting soundtrack. They play Leaning on the Everlasting Arms like 17 different ways in 17 times, yeah. different scenes. No, that's because Leaning on the Everlasting Arms is Maddie's theme. That's her theme song. So whenever she's doing something, it plays. And uh, I see. Rooster Cogburn's theme song is uh, Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox. And uh, it's sorghum molasses. The beef's theme song is the uh, beautiful instrumental uh, version of YMCA. And so, <laughs> you notice Garth Brooks wasn't the same theme song to anything because he's probably not that good. Can you imagine, young man? Do 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 do. For the beef, yeah, I should. That would be awesome. That'd be great. Imagine, like, some, some, slow, some slow fiddle going... <laughs> but I, I will say that just with the uh, musical company of Leaning on the Everlasting uh, Arms, or Everlasting Arms, and the Bible verse at the beginning, it has officially became the most faith-based movie that we've watched in over a month. Yeah, I was wondering if that was why you called it a faith-based movie. I didn't. They had a no, I, hold on a second. I did not call this a faith-based movie. I Googled oh. a list of faith-based movies, and this was on it. Oh. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's somebody has called this a faith-based movie. This was a very Christian movie, I thought, with the overwhelming uh, theme of revenge being the, you know, the, the main point of it. No, I, I would I would not say that's a Christian movie. I would say that it is an Old Testament movie. <laughs> Are you telling me that Maddie Ross isn't the Blood Avenger? Oh, she's yes, she's trying to avenge her father's death. 
I'm just saying the Bible, the Old Testament clearly sets up that if you are murdered, your next of kin has every right to hunt you down and murder you. Murder you right back. Unless you get to a city of refuge. You murdered me, I'm murdering you back. He didn't have a boat to get to the city of refuge. That was way over there in Israel. And really, it's not a story of revenge. It's a story of redemption for Rooster Cogburn. But anyways... Is it? Yeah, it is. And I'll explain why if you would let me get past the first sentence. Please. Proceedeth. The narrator of our film is an older version of our protagonist, Maddie Ross. And she sets up the story we're about to see. Now, Scott, you and I know that people... Do not give credence that a young girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood. But it did happen. <laughs> I've met a lot of girls to run away from home at 14 to seek revenge. You see, when young Maddie Ross was just 14, her daddy was killed in cold blood by an outlaw named Tom Chaney. Not only did Cheney take Mr. Ross's life, but he stole his horse and two California gold pieces that Maddie's daddy kept in his trouser band. After committing the heinous crime, Cheney's fled on the back of a stolen horse, and no one chased him. Some time had passed since the murder. It's possible that Cheney believed that he had gotten away with the bloodletting, but he was wrong. For you must pay for everything in this world one way and another. There is nothing free except the grace of God. A scrawny 14-year-old girl steps off a train followed by her servant, a middle-aged black man named Yarnell. They have arrived in Fort Smith, and their first stop is the Undertaker's to identify the late Mr. Ross's body. Maddie is shown her father's corpse, and the Undertaker really, really wants her to know that it would be alright for Maddie to kiss her father's body. That was creepy. Not once, not twice. Didn't he say it three times? I don't know. If you would if like you to, to give him a kiss, you, it would be, be all right. right. And then I do love uh, Maddie's refusal, saying, thank you, but the spirit has flown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she then sends Yarnell home to Yell County with Mr. Ross's body, and Maddie is planning on staying behind in Fort Smith to handle some of her father's unfinished business. She asks the Undertaker if she may spend the night in the funeral home, and the Undertaker is taken aback, but agrees if and Maddie doesn't mind sleeping among three dead bodies. She looks around, the, the room is empty. The Undertaker tells her that he's expecting three more empty vessels this evening. Uh, vessels by the name of Sullivan, Smith, and... His tongue in the rain. Are you snapping your fingers? No, you're opening nope. that. Slurp, 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 slurp. What's your issue? Don't you know that they had cans of soda back in the West? <laughs> they had cans of sarsaparilla. I was watching, I think it was Gunsmoker Bonanza when I was at the eye doctor earlier this week. And uh, this girl apparently couldn't talk, and her suitor was trying to get her to talk. Cut to the town gallows. Three men stand bound on a trap door with nooses secured around their neck. 
As we enter the scene, we witness Smith blubbering through his last words, much to the chagrin of the town folk, who prefer their hangees to be stoic. His crying is muted when a hood is slipped over his head. And one of the uh, uh, witnesses shouts from the audience, Quit your crying, boy! Which I thought was real nice. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, the next man up to say his last words fits the town's bill. As we hear Sullivan say, Well, I killed the wrong man, is the witch of why I'm here. Had I killed the man I meant to, I don't believe I would have been convicted. And he too was hooded. Then we move down to the aforementioned, his tongue in the rain. He begins his last words, but is immediately cut off by a hood slipped over his head. <laughs> Before I am hanged, I would like to say... Because <laughs> you can't speak when a bag is over your head. The executioner pulls the lever, and the three souls suffer a quick drop and a sudden stop. In the crowd, Maddie asks a local woman which official presiding over the hanging happens to be the sheriff. She is told, him with the mustaches. <laughs> Plural. <laughs> Maddie does track down the mustachioed lawman in order to inquire about the efforts being taken to stop the murderous Cheney. The sheriff informs the young Ross that her father's murderer had teamed up with the infamous Lucky Ned Pepper Gang, and they had fled into the neighboring Indian Territory. Seeing as the sheriff has no authority in the Indian nation, he cannot pursue Cheney. However, he does tell Maddie that she is free to try and entice a marshal to chase Cheney, assuming she can offer a good enough reward. Maddie asks the sheriff who's the best marshal in these here parts, to which the sheriff responds, I'd have to weigh that. William Waters is best tracker. He's half Comanche, and it is something to see him cut for sign. The meanest is Rooster Cogburn. He is a pitiless man, double tough, and fear don't enter his thinking. He loves to pull a cork. The best is probably L.T. Quinn. He brings his prisoners in alive. Now, he may let one get by now and again, but he believes even the worst man is entitled to a fair shake. Maddie sets her sights on Rooster and asks where she might find him. At a public outhouse outside of a local watering hole, Maddie is wrapping her knuckles against the door. Mr. Cogburn, who is in the middle of some urgent business, responds, The Jake's occupied. <laughs> Maddie's persistent and wants to discuss business with the marshal. Rooster tells Maddie that he is currently involved with prior business, to which Maddie says, You have been at it for quite some time, Mr. Cogburn. To which an irate rooster shouts out, There is no clock on my business! Followed by a more sullen, The Jake is occupied, and will be for some time. I will say that uh, anytime you find yourself in a public restroom, like one of those one-holers in a gas station... The worst happens where somebody comes on and knocks on the door. Just shout, there is no time or no clock on my business. <laughs> they, they will leave you alone. <laughs> there is no time on my business. Later in the day, the remains of Maddie's father are loaded onto a train bound for Yell County. 
and the young girl makes her way into the Undertaker's office. She's greeted by the Undertaker himself, who informs Miss Ross that if she would like to sleep in a coffin, that would be alright. The next morning, Maddie makes her way to a local merchant's office. Mr. Stonehill is the name of the clerk, and he ran the stable that housed Maddie's father's horse. Maddie reveals herself to be an adept negotiator as well as a person unwilling to be taken advantage of. In the end, she convinces Mr. Stonehill to pay for her father's stolen horse, a handful of ponies that her father bought before he died, ponies that Mr. Stonehill does not want, and a gray horse that Maddie does not own. In the end, she manages to get $320 out of him. She pretty, then Pretty good negotiator. So, yeah, he owes her $320, but she's going to get $20 in advance, and the rest will be paid when Maddie's lawyer pins a document releasing Mr. Stonehill from any legal liability. That evening, Maddie looks for better lodging for her remaining time in Fort Smith, and she comes across the Monarch Boarding House, the very place her father stayed and was murdered in front of. The proprietor of the boarding house, Mrs. Floyd, is overcome with emotion when she learns that Maddie is the late Mr. Ross's daughter. She tells Maddie that she can stay as long, uh, or that she can stay as long as she doesn't mind doubling up with Grandma Turner. Maddie agrees to the combinations, and before bed, Mrs. Floyd gives Maddie her father's effects, in which Maddie finds a long-barreled Colt Dragoon, which Mrs. Floyd mm. offers, uh, uh, to provide a, a flower sack for Maddie to keep her gun in for a nickel. To which I respond, Mrs. Floyd, just give the poor girl a flower sack. <laughs> really? I mean, come well, on. Business, business has probably been down since that -uh. guy got shot on her no, porch. No, so. no, she, she says in this scene, I'm sorry I don't have an extra room because everybody came in from out of town to see the hanging. She's having, <laughs> she is having more business at this moment in time than she normally has. And now I'm sitting here wondering, Luke. Look at me, Luke. What? Did you watch the movie? Yes, I did watch the movie. No, oh, you, I, you... That was an easy-to-miss line. She's a woman of business. I mean... I'm just saying. Everyone in that town girl, has the malaria. So the she's got to make a nickel where she can. loses her father. She's by herself. She has to double up with Grandma Turner. Just give the girl a flower sack. <laughs> Just, I mean, I know a nickel is a lot more back then than it is today, but come on, it's not that much more. It's it's not going to break you up. The night spent with Grandma Turner is anything but restful, as Grandma Turner has horrible sleep apnea, as well as a terrible habit of stealing the blankets. But Maddie endures the cold night. Maddie makes her way to Fort Smith Courthouse. The next morning, a trial is underway concerning a robbery conducted by the Wharton boys. In the witness stand sits Rooster Cogburn, a grizzled and gray marshal, missing an eye and packing a few pounds on his midsection. Rooster is being asked about the night that he apprehended Otis Wharton. During the cross-examination, some discrepancies are brought to light. <laughs> <laughs> some small, minor details. Also, we are informed by Otis's lawyer that Cogburn is responsible for the deaths of 23 men during his time as U.S. Marshal. Of course, Maddie is enthralled by this man. Here is a person who has the titular true grit. 
She knows beyond a shadow well of played, doubt. Jack, well played. She knows beyond a shadow of doubt that Rooster is the man she wants hunting down her daddy's killer. After the trial, Maddie approaches the visibly irritated Rooster Cogburn as he is trying to roll a cigarette. Maddie immediately takes over the cigarette construction and informs Cogburn that she will give him $50 to hunt down and kill Tom Chaney. Rooster states his unbelief that she has $50, and when Maddie admits that she doesn't uh, at the moment, but she will get it, Rooster takes his finished smoke and walks away, saying probably one of the best lines in any Western of, of any, now let's just say any movie, of the agnostic protagonist of a film uh, as he is being introduced. He takes his cigarette, walks away and says, I don't, believe in fa- <laughs> I don't believe in fairy tales, sermons, or story about money, baby sister, but thank you for the cigarette. Don't know why. That's just a cool line. <laughs> <laughs> Again... If you're in a bathroom, <laughs> there is no time on my business. If somebody knocks, you can either shout, there's no clock on my business, or you can shout, I don't believe in fairy tale sermons or story about bunny baby sister, but thanks for the cigarette. <laughs> either way. <laughs> can you imagine? I, it's, I, don't, I don't believe in fairy tales, sermons, sermons, or stories about money, baby sister, but thanks for the cigarette. That's actually uh, what that song... Um, Hey, you know that song is like, Hey, little sister, let me lie to you, can't know, because you're my arse, I forgot, da 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 baby, now, bow, bow, bow. That's actually what they're saying. Oh, yeah, that one. She's, if you listen closely, it says, I don't believe in fairy tales, I'm so money, baby, sister, but thank you for all the cigarette. You know, I think what makes this movie so enjoyable for me um, was not the storyline. Like, the storyline's... You know, it's fine, but it's been done a million times, and there's nothing really deep within the storyline for the most part. But the script is excellent. No, yeah. and that's and I feel like f- for the first for the first part of the movie, especially, that's what like that really captures. The when viewer. you watch a Coen Brothers movie, whether it's Fargo or Oh Brother Where Art Thou or True Grit, when you watch these movies, you don't watch them for the action or even really the storyline. They are brilliant at writing dialogue between characters and if you look at the script nothing is improvised everything is read pretty much verbatim in the film they are brilliant dialogue writers maddie returns to the boarding house and is disturbed to see a strange man sitting on the porch staring at her as she walks in but she brushes that off and goes inside that night she is still forced to sleep beside the snoring blanket stealing grandma turner but is awoken by something far worse. Matt Damon dressed like a cowboy with a prominent cowlick <laughs> atop his head. He's my favorite character in this show. Yeah, but I can't think of a few things worse that I want to see when I wake up. I can't think of many things worse than Matt Damon just smoking a pipe in the corner of my room staring at me. Like that's, I, really? I don't, I don't want that. I wish we could set that up, because that would be really funny. (laughs) This man that we see smoking and staring is the creepy, yet wonderfully named LaBeef. Now keep in mind, (laughs) he pronounces his name LaBeef. I want to spell this out for you. 
His name is spelled L or capital L E, capital B O E U F. So it should be like Which le, le bouffe or something. It's French, obviously, but <laughs> it's French le bouffe. Le and that, but but they he Americanized the living, the living <laughs> criminy out of it. Just my name's le bouffe. Out of everything. <laughs> he tells Maddie that he had just come from Yell County and spoken to her mother. Turns out he too is looking for Tom Cheney, but he tells her. Though in the months I've been tracking him, he has used the names Theron Chelmsford, John Todd Anderson, and others. He dallied in Monroe, Louisiana, and Pine Bluff, Arkansas, before turning up at your father's place. Maddie responds, well, why didn't you catch him in Monroe, Louisiana, or Pine Bluff, Arkansas? The beef says, he is a crafty one. Well, I thought him <laughs> slow-witted myself. That's what Maddie says, because Maddie's a baller. <laughs> you don't get one up on Maddie. When Maddie asks if Labeef is some kind of law, he immediately rocks back in his chair with the biggest <laughs> smile on his face and just like <laughs> just pulls the lapel of his outer coat and he's like Yeah, like I'm a Texas Ranger. <laughs> and if she and if Labeef expects Maddie to be impressed by that star on his chest, well, he is sorely disappointed. As the young girl responds, that may make you big noise in that state. In Arkansas, you should mind that your Texas trappings and title do not make you an object of fun. Why have you been ineffectually pursuing Cheney? <laughs> the ranger tells her that he is chasing Cheney because he shot a senator after an argument about a dog. Now, Labeef suggests that he and Cogburn team up to capture Cheney together, a proposition that Maddie outright refuse, or outrightly refuses. See, she knows that if the Ranger catches Cheney, then the outlaw will be taken to Texas to hang for the murder of a senator. But Maddie wants Cheney to hang in Yell County for the murder of his father. The Ranger argues that he had been chasing Cheney for months, and he only gets paid if he brings the outlaw back to Texas, to which Maddie responds, I am sorry that you're paid piecework, not on wages, and that you have been eluded the winter long by a half-wit. Marshall Cogburn and I are fine. <laughs> it's great. Eluded by a half-wit. Then the ranger says the creepiest line in my opinion, in modern cinematic history. And remember, he is talking to a 14-year-old girl here. You give out very little sugar with your pronouncements. While I sat there watching you, I gave some thought to stealing a kiss, though you are very young and sick and unattractive to boot. But now, <laughs> I have a mind to give you five or six good licks with my belt. But again, Maddie is a baller, and she does not blink an eye as she retorts one would be as unpleasant as the other. If you wet your comb, it might tame that cowlick. <laughs> Later, Maddie secures the letter from her lawyer and purchases a horse from Mr. Stonehill and collects the money that she is due. With money in hand, she goes to find Rooster Cogburn, who has passed out in the back room of a Chinese grocery store. After a brief discussion in which Rooster gets Maddie to pay him $100 instead of 50 to hunt down Cheney, the marshal agrees to, to take the bounty, and Maddie also convinces Rooster to take her with him on the manhunt. Rooster tells Maddie to meet him at 7, 
and they will be off to get her father's murderer. Early the next morning, Maddie is shocked to find that Rooster had left the Chinese grocery by the time she got to by the time she got there. But undeterred, she gives pursuit and catches up to Rooster, who is in the company of Labeef, on the other side of a long river that separates Fort Smith from the Indian Nation. When the guy who mans the ferry refuses to give Maddie and her horse a ride across, the bold youngster leads her horse into the river. Rooster stares impressed as the young woman and her mount swim to the other side of the river, soaked to the bone, but otherwise no worse for wear. I love this scene. They're just like, he's lighting up the cigarette. They're watching her. They're like, will she die? Will she not? <laughs> no movement on their end. They're like, hmm, let's see what happens here. Well, keep in mind, too, that this is in the she... middle of winter. So, you know, will she get hypothermia? Is it like the Oregon Trail? Is she going to end up with cholera and die? <laughs> you have failed to ford the river. All of your possessions are lost. <laughs> I, I I I made a mistake of playing a, a Flash version of uh, the Oregon Trail, like within a year ago, mm-hmm. and I made the mistake of naming everybody in my party after my family. So like I oh, had wow. I had Kelsey there, and I had Joseph there, and I even <laughs> named a few things after my dogs. I was nearly in tears when I crossed the border into Oregon. I made it, but Joseph died of dysentery. Kelsey was attacked by engines. I had... (laughs) Labeef is less impressed at Maddie's daring river crossing and actually sees the young woman's actions as blatant disrespect to the marshal and, more importantly, the Texas Ranger. The Ranger, who just apparently up to this moment hadn't done enough things to creep you out, pulls Maddie off her horse... (laughs) then pulls her over his knee and proceeds to spank her, then switches to caning her legs when he finds a suitable stick nearby. I'm not going to lie. I laughed this whole scene. Like, I just could not believe that they were actually put this in here. Why? Like, it was horrible. I don't... It wasn't horrible. It was meant to be funny. It was. It was funny. not meant to be funny. She said no, they're he's... crying, tears down her face, begging. Are you gonna let him do this to me, Marshall? Then you're allowed to laugh when the marshal finishes his smoke after like twenty three more hits, and then goes, "Nah, yeah. I don't believe I will." Put your switch away, Labeef. This is clearly meant to be a funny scene. No, it's not. I, I wholeheartedly disagree <laughs> yes, with you. Is. I, yes, it is. See, I didn't find humor in it either. I mean, how else would you interpret this scene other than that it was supposed to be funny? As in, Labeef is, a, is full of himself and wants to prove that he's a man by beating a small girl, which is ridiculous, but it just shows what a ridiculous person Labeef actually is, and it also shows the beginning of Rooster Cogburn forging a relationship with this girl where he saves her from said beating. (laughs) Maddie, humiliated, with tears in her eyes, pleads with Rooster as she's being beaten, crying out, are you going to let him do this, Marshall? And then Rooster stares for the longest time before saying, no, I don't believe I will. Put your switch away, Labeef. And when the ranger refuses, saying that he aims to finish what he started, creepy, uh, uh, the grizzled lawman draws his pistol on Labeef and says, that'll be the biggest mistake you ever made, you Texas brush popper. 
Which again, if you're in the bathroom and somebody comes knocking, if you just shout, if you don't stop knocking, that'll be the biggest mistake you ever make, you Texas brush popper. They're probably going to go away. And I wonder exactly how long it was going to take Labeef to finish. I'm going to finish what I started. <laughs> I've gotten whippings before in my life. You got three. When you had people upset, you got six, you got seven. He done whooped this girl 33 <laughs> times. Well, you I mean, what was his number? And after he got done with the switch, that he was going to take his glove off and just backhand her across the face a couple of times. <laughs> then she was going to find. He was going to find a modern toilet, give her a few swirlies, three Indian rug burns. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine a swirly back in those days, in the days of the outhouse? Mm. Now that's disgusting. Annoyed but not stupid, Labeef relents. That night. Maddie is by a large campfire, and Labeef is jabbering incessantly as Rooster shows up with more wood. The ranger is saying, I am not accustomed to so large a fire. In Texas, we make do with a fire a little more than twigs and buffalo chips to heat the night's ration of beans. And it is ranger policy never to make your camp in the same place as your cook fire. Very prudent to make your presence are very imprudent to make your presence known in unsettled country. To this, Rooster just stares at him and then puts more wood on the fire, making it even bigger. <laughs> As the three settle in for the night, Rooster tells Maddie to fetch water for the morning. And Maddie's like, no, get your own water. But then, Labeef pipes in as if he did not just beat the living snot out of her earlier in that day. You are lucky to be traveling in a place where there's a spring so handy. In my country, you can ride for days and see no groundwater. I have lapped filthy water from a hoof print and was glad to have it. <laughs> to which Rooster responds, If I ever met one of you Texas waddies that says he never drank water from a horse track, I think I'd shake his hand and give him a Daniel Webster cigar. <laughs> you don't believe it? I believed it the first 25 times I heard it. Maybe it's true. Maybe lapping water off the ground is Ranger Policy. <laughs> Tensions between Marshall or the Marshall and the Texas Ranger continue to grow before everyone decides to just bed down for the night. The next morning, tensions begin to climb when Labeef and Rooster uh, have a conversation that leads into talking about their service during the Civil War. Labeef mocks Rooster for fighting for the Confederacy under the leadership of Captain Quantrill and Bloody Bill Anderson and then accuses Cogburn's unit of murdering women and children in Lawrence, Kansas. Rooster calls Labeef a liar, and states that there are not sufficient dollars in the state of Texas to make it worth my while to listen to your opinions day and night. Our, our, our agreement is nullified, each man for himself. That's it, boys. We have a foot race to get Tom Chaney. Yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, this news makes Maddie happy as she was worried that Labeef and Rooster would take Cheney to Texas to stand trial. But before Labeef rides away in a huff, he shouts one last jab at Rooster. Congratulations, Cogburn! You have graduated from Marotta to Wet Nurse! Adios! <laughs> Adios. <laughs> Labeef is the best character. And in all reality, that is a huge transition. Marauder to wet nurse. <laughs> That'll change your life. <laughs> <laughs>
What if you are a wet nursing marauder? Maddie and Rooster arrive at their first stop in the, Ind or, or, in the Indian Territory, Bagby's Store. It's the only store for miles. So if Ned Pepper's gang is in the region, along with Cheney, they would have stopped there for supplies. When they arrive, Rooster is appalled to see two Native American kids poking a terrified mule with sharpened sticks. He just knocks both of them to the ground real hard. <laughs> and frees the beast. I, I chuckled at this scene, too. I did, too. I, now, this was funny because... Uh, How was the other one not funny? <laughs> Because neither You're one of the a kid. neither one of the Indian boys got up with tears in his eyes as Cogburn continued to kick them in the ribs over and over again. The amount of people that probably got beat by strangers back in the old days for being I bad. I don't care about the amount of people. I care about the protagonist who I have an emotional connection with because she's dealing with her father's death. <sighs> we have a fundamental disagreement on beating you know, children. Do you know how messed up your kids are going to be if, as you are hitting them or spanking them, you're just busting out laughing? It's it's got <laughs> Megan's Megan's gonna take care of this stuff. You know, whenever There's you no discipline worries. your kid, you always say, you know, this is gonna hurt me more than it hurts you. You can't really no, say no that. No ever says that after you hit no him, and then you're that. just like, this is the best. <laughs> I was hoping you screwed up tonight. <laughs> Woohoo! Hey, Megan, go get me my hitting stick. This kid's getting it tonight. <laughs> Can you imagine Megan pulling her little thirty-seven <laughs> no, out of her pocket, a... going, going, that'll be enough, you Texas brush popper. <laughs> So are we knocks, moving on, or are, so are we still debating? These, he knocks down these two little Indian boys. It's not a debate. It's you trying to justify why you're a sociopath. He knocks these two no. little boys oh, down in goodness. the dirt and frees the tortured beast. And Rooster Cog now Rooster Cogburn is no humanitarian, but he cannot abide an animal being abused. Rooster then goes into the store and soon comes out with news. Cheney hasn't been to the store, but one of the Ned Pepper gang has. Just a few days ago, two days ago to be exact, by supplies. And what's more, the outlaw paid for their goods with a California gold piece, which Maddie recognizes as her late father's. Now that they have a heading, pursuing the Ned Pepper gang, Cogburn leads them north on the outlaw's trail. But they don't get going before Cogburn takes a moment to just kick the Indian kid down again. He just got back up on the railing just before he leaves. Just one little last... How? Did you laugh? The dirt. Did you laugh? Of course I did, because that was played for comedy. <laughs> he was beating a mule. Hey. Plus, those kids, were, those kids were real homely. It's always funny when homely <laughs> kids get beaten. <laughs> I'm the psychopath. As they begin closing the gap between themselves and Ned Pepper er, and the Ned Pepper gang. Rooster tells Maddie a bit about his history as they ride along. Maddie and Cogburn come across a man hanged high in a tree. Rooster tells Maddie to climb up the tree to see if the dead man is Cheney. Rooster surely would climb himself if not, or if he was not too old and too fat. Which is my excuse to whenever Kelsey asked me to do anything. Zach, will you switch the laundry around? I would, but I am too old and too fat. Too old and too fat. Again, if you're in a bathroom and somebody knocks on the door and you shout, I'm too old and too fat, they'll probably leave you alone. <laughs> Don't ever ask us to climb a tree, Luke. If any what of was us the point to... of this scene? Like, what was... They just want to hang a guy in a tree? Well... And then sell his dead body? The corpse gets around. What's the point of this scene is 
Maddie's also worried that Cheney did something to the Ned Pepper gang and that they killed him between or before she can get his hands on him. And so when they see a dead person, they have to stop and see if it's Cheney. And we're in the Wild West. You're, you're telling me that beating a 14-year-old girl until she's in tears is, is perfectly hilarious, but hanging a random man in a random tree, oh, that's too far. When Maddie gets high in the bowels... She tells, or she tells the marshal that the man is not Cheney, but Rooster tells Maddie to cut him down anyways because, well, he might know him. The young girl struggles to get at the rope as the branch she's on dangerously bounces up and down. Uh, she asks, why did they hang him so high? To which Cogburn responds, I don't know, possibly in the belief it would make him more dead. Once the corpse is cut down and deposited at the feet of the marshal, he states, rather matter-of-factly, I do not know this man. But as luck would have it, a, a passing Native American offers to take the corpse off Maddie in the marshal's hands. After all, a dead body is possibly worth something in trade. As our two protagonists continue to travel, snow begins to fall. A gunshot rings from... The shot was from the Indian who took the corpse earlier. Rooster asked him to shoot if he passed anyone uh, uh, that was coming their way. Cogburn immediately assumes it's Labeef. And Labeef is using Maddie and himself as bird dogs and following their trail all the way to Cheney. But to their surprise, it is not the ranger that comes into the pass, but a large, hairy mountain man wearing an intimidating grizzly hide as a coat with head still intact and he goes by the name of forrester forrester now my name is forrester he was not for forrest gump at all he was forrester my name is forrester mama says they was my magic shows what are you doing he had he had a magic bear coat Now, Forrester practices dentistry in the Indian nation. Also, veterinarian acts and medicine on those humans that will sit still for it. That was his voice, not Forrest Gump. Forrester. Cogburn asks... uh, uh, after hearing this, Cockburn replies, Well, you have your work cut out for you then. Uh, motioning towards the previously hanged corpse from earlier, now on the back of Forrester's mount. <laughs> Would you pick up a dead body if you could trade it for something? Back then, sure. It turns out Forrester explains that he got the corpse from an Indian who said that he got it or he, he came by it honestly, and he, all he had to trade was two dental mirrors and a bottle of expectorant. At this point, Rooster looks around at the weather, and a winter storm is blowing in. He asks Forrester if he knew a place where he and Maddie might find some shelter. Forrester responds, I have my bear skin. To which Rooster doesn't respond, but should, Well, that's great for you, buddy. Doesn't look big enough for all three of us, though. He says, I have my bear skin. You might want to head over to the original Greaser Bombs. He's notched a dugout in a hollow along the Carleon River. If you ride the river, you won't fail to see it. Greaser Bob. Original Greaser Bob. 
is hunting north of the picket wire, and he would not begrudge its use. Just nice greaser Bob, just letting it... Which is nice of Greaser Bob just letting his house be used by any miscreant that, that just so happens to come by. But before the two go off to find the original Greaser Bob's shack, Forrester makes them an offer. I have taken his teeth. Referring to the dead man, I will entertain offers for the rest of him. But Maddie and Cogburn politely refuse. As Maddie and Marshall approach Greaser Bob's house, they notice smoke billowing from the chimney. Rooster tells Maddie to take his coat and climb onto the shack's roof, and if those inside are hostile, then Maddie is to dampen the chimney with the coat to smoke them out. Now, it does not take long for Marshall to learn that those inside the hut are not friendly. A small gunfight ensues, and we hear that one of the men inside the hut is wounded. But the villains still do not come out. Rooster finally calls out, I'm a federal officer. Who's in there? And speak up and be quick about it. To which my favorite line in the entire movie, an angry voice shouts back, A Methodist and a son of a f- Why? I do not know. But again, if you're which in the- Which one was Methodist? If you're in the bathroom, and it- <laughs> <laughs> Cogburn immediately recognizes the voice as the outlaw Emmett Quincy. Maddie and Rooster make themselves comfortable inside of Greaser Bob's abode. Quincy is handcuffed at the kitchen table, and his partner, Moon, is shot in the leg and gasping in pain. The marshal asks the two outlaws when the last time they had seen their old friend, Ned Pepper, and his gang, and Quincy is adamant that they've never even heard about him, even though Quincy is notorious for running with the Ned Pepper gang. Moon, who is in considerable pain, begins to talk when Rooster promises to get him medical attention. This enrages Quincy, who picks up a knife and immediately cuts off four fingers on Moon's right hand before burying the blade in Moon's chest. Cogburn is quick on the draw and puts a bullet between Quincy's eyes before going to the side of a dying Moon. After being told that he is dying and cannot be helped. I bet you found this scene hilarious, too. Uh, after being told that he is dying and cannot be helped, Moon asks Rooster to give him a decent burial and not let the wolves rip up his corpse. Rooster promises if Moon will tell him what he knows about Ned Pepper. Moon informs the Marshal that the Ned Pepper gang are on their way to Greaser Bob's and that Quincy and himself were sent ahead to fix supper for the band of miscreants. Then Moon looks down at his bleeding torso and gasps, I'm gone. Send news to my brother, George Garrett. He is a Methodist circle rider in South Texas. Rooster asks, should I tell him you were outlawed up? It doesn't matter. He knows I'm on the scout. I will meet him later walking the streets of glory. To which Rooster responds, well, don't look for Quincy. <laughs> <laughs> Outside the hut, Maddie and Rooster are hunkering down a nearby ledge. Cogburn has his rifle out resting on a stump. The plan is to wait for the Ned Pepper gang to come into Greaser Bob's house and then shoot the last one, uh, or the last outlaw to go in and then try to negotiate with the remaining uh, outlaws to get them outside and into custody. If they surrender, Rooster will take them alive. If they don't, well, then it becomes, as Rooster calls it, a turkey shoot. Maddie is actually impressed with the marshal's strategy. 
Their conversation is cut short by the arrival of a single rider making his way to Greaser Bob's. That is, the original Greaser Bob's. Rooster Rooster assumes that this is a scout sent by Pepper. However, his assumption is once again proven wrong, for it is none other than LaBeef. LaBeef! Where's LaBeef? Before Rooster and Maddie can warn the ranger of the danger he's in, Lucky, the Lucky Pepper gang rides up behind him. Quickly, a member of the gang, still astride as mayor, tosses a lasso around the ranger, pulling him off his feet and disarming him. Suddenly, Rooster fires with his rifle and drops a couple of outlaws that are near the hut. This causes the outlaws to panic and shoot wildly. Cogburn continues to fire, eventually bringing down Lucky Ned's horse. The beef is dragged for a bit before the outlaw towing the ranger cuts the rope and picks up Ned from the ground. The living outlaws flee, and Maddie and Marshall descend to inspect the damage. When they reach the ranger, he is severely injured. He's beaten up from being dragged, shot with a rifle, which Cogburn was the only one firing a rifle, uh, and he bit his tongue nearly in two. Rooster, always a pragmatist and, and such a kind person, offers to tear out the ranger's tongue for him. Uh, just <laughs> like a band-aid. Just let me get the rest of that out. Yes, you were dragged, son. But Labeef doesn't take him up on that offer. Maddie inspects the two outlaws Rooster put down. Neither are Chaney. Rooster already knows this and has already ID'd them as Cocaise and Clement Parmalee. Parmalee and his brother own a silver mine nearby. Rooster assumes that that is where the Ned Pepper gang is holed up. That night, the three of them are in the hut eating the supper that Moon and Quincy prepared for Ned and his boys. That was my favorite boy band of the 90s, Ned and his boys. Ned and his boys. Labeef and Maddie are in deep conversation. As the ranger says, As I understand it, Chaney, or... Kelmsford, as he's called in Texas, shot the senator's dog. And when the senator remonstrated, Kelmsford shot him as well. You could argue that the shooting of the dog was merely an instance of malum prohibitum. But the shooting of a senator is undubitably an instance of malum in se. To which Rooster turns around confused, malum in what? And Maddie explains, Malamim say the distinction is between an act that is wrong in itself and an act that is wrong only according to our laws and morals. It is Latin. Rooster takes a long pull on his whiskey bottle and then exclaims, I am struck that Labeef is shot, trampled, and nearly severs his tongue. And not only does he not cease to talk, but spills the banks of English. (laughs) It's just an amazing line. Ignoring the marshal's jape, Labeef recalls a time when he was within 300 yards of Cheney, and that is well within the range of his trusty Sharps carbine rifle. He had the choice to dismount and use the saddle as a rest, but that would have put even more distance between himself and Cheney, or shoot offhand still mounted. Labeef says that he chose to do the latter, and his shot went wide. Taking another drink, Marshall responds... You could not hit a man at 300 yards if the gun was resting on Gibraltar. (laughs) 
Labeef argues that the sharp carbine is an instrument of uncanny power and precision, to which Rooster retorts, I have no doubt that the gun is sound. Labeef <laughs> <laughs> just shrugs, but he is rendered silent. The next morning, the, th- the three mount up and head towards the silver mine. Maddie pipes up and says that they promised Moon that they would give him, uh, or that they would bury him. And a clearly drunk Cogburn replies, ground is too hard. If these men wanted a decent burial, they should have gotten themselves kilt in summer. The trio do make it to the silver mine and find it deserted. Without a lead, the three decide to make camp. Maddie offers Labeef some food, which the ranger refuses, knowing that Rooster would not want him eating from his stores. Rooster agrees wholeheartedly with the ranger's reasoning, saying, Let him starve. He does not track. He does not shoot. He does not contribute. He is a man who walks in front of bullets. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Labeef has had enough of the marshal and decides to make camp elsewhere. Rooster Cogburn is perfectly okay with this and tells the ranger to take Maddie with him because he quits. A bow out, he says. Now, Maddie is quick to try and dissuade the marshal of this decision, saying, gentlemen, we cannot fall out in this fashion so close to our goal with Tom Chaney nearly in hand. And Rooster spits back, in hand, if he is not in a shallow grave somewhere between here and Fort Smith, he is gone. Long gone. Thanks to Mr. Labeef, we missed our shot. We have barked and the birds have flown. Gone, gone, gone. Lucky Ned and his cohorts gone. Your $50 gone. Gone is the whiskey I seized in evidence. The trail is cold, if there ever was one. I'm a foolish old man who has been drawn into a wild goose chase by a harpy in trousers and a nincompoop. Well, Mr. (laughs) Labeef can wander the Choctaw Nation for as long as he likes. Perhaps local Indians will take him in and honor his gibberings and make him chief. You, sister, may go where you like. I return home. Our engagement is terminated. I bow out. Which I think is just really fantastic, because those were verbatim my vows. (laughs) Our Maddie then goes to Labeef and is discouraged to learn that he has given up on the hunt for Chaney as well. Maddie, not knowing what else to do, lies down next to the campfire. Rooster is already dead asleep, snoring off his drunkenness. The next morning, Maddie heads down to the nearby river to fetch some water. When she fell down and broke her crown, and Rooster came tumbling after. (laughs) The end. (laughs) <laughs> it's a real messed up nursery rhyme when you think about it yeah truly all of the nursery rhymes are a little bit morbid like the uh what's the one about the black plague black plague black plague have you ring around the rosy <laughs> ring around the rosy is about the black death right and uh it is i know Look it up. i know and uh london bridges falling down is about the time that london bridge fell down <laughs> What a shame. (laughs) Alright, next morning, Maddie heads down to the nearby stream to fetch some water, but to her surprise, none other than Tom Chaney is just downstream watering some horses. Chaney looks almost relieved when he sees her, just to see a face that he recognizes. It's Josh Brolin. Skinny Josh Brolin before he beefed up for the Avengers. And apparently before he learned how to enunciate... Because he sounds like somebody shoved 13 hankies in his mouth and just said, try your best to talk here. And he goes, Hannah here. 
Who talks like that, Josh Brolin? <laughs> I know him. You're the little Matty Rouse's girl. You're all the bookkeeper. You do an amazing job with impersonations. Oh, this guy played Thanos? Yeah, it's Josh Brolin. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, now you do. Maddie informs Chaney as she pulls her dragoon out of her five-cent flower sack that she has come to take Chaney back to Fort Smith to answer for his crimes. A genius debater, Chaney responds, I will not go. How do you like that? (laughs) (laughs) That may be one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Maddie then informs the outlaw that that she will now have to kill him. Chaney disbelieves her threats and even instructs the girl how to properly cock her pistol. Which I think is wonderful because once again we get a glimpse at truly how old young Maddie Ross is. Pull the, pull the hammer, Brock. I know how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> then Chaney advances on her, planning on taking her hostage, and Maddie fires. The kick from her pistol knocks her into the river, but she quickly gets to her feet and aims the gun back at Chaney, who is looking at his bleeding side, shocked that she actually shot him. She recocks the gun, and Rooster shouts to her from high on the riverbank. Chaney composes himself and walks menacingly towards Maddie, who fires again. Click. Click goes the pistol. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I wrote. (laughs) It's never a good sound when you're trying to kill a man. Unless you're using one of them secret outlawed clicking bullets. (laughs) Yes. The old clicking bullet. It said click. There was no boom, no bang. Like in West Side click. Story where the two gangs rumble. Before they get up to rumble, they both, they're both they just mm. snapping their fingers are coming towards. Well, these clicking bullets do that. Instead of making a bang, they do an even more intimidating. Because not only is someone getting shot, they think that two gangs are about to rumble and or dance and sing a song. Either way. It's scary. That would have been that would have been funny if Tom Chaney and Maddie would have broken into the musical there in the river. Click goes the pistol, a misfire, <laughs> and it gives Chaney the chance he needs. He disarms the girl and strikes her about the head. Luke died of laughing at that part, and a dazed Maddie is carried away by the outlaw. The other members of Ned's gang are in the trees. Rooster finally gets to the bank to see Maddie being dragged away, and the marshal and the gang exchange fire for a moment, but no bullets find their marks. Chaney hands Maddie to Ned. The lucky leader asks the girl how many men are with the marshal, and she says, I don't know about Tree Fitty, to which Ned just knocks her to the ground and then just pushes a boot all up in her little chubby cheek, making her look like a little chipmunk. The most terrifying chipmunk I've ever seen in my life. Because Ned Pepper, whose mouth is all messed up, I don't know what's going on with his mouth. His whole oh. his whole mouth looks like a cold sore. I don't know. And <laughs> oh, yeah, Ned Ned knocks Maddie onto her feet, puts a boot on her head, and points the gun at her and says, "If you lie to me again, I will kill you." And so she's he like, looked pretty serious too. Yeah. And she says, "It's just you know me and the marshal with his polar bear chaps on." With his fuzzy chaps. <laughs> Those were lamb, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Lamb, maybe goat. Ned tells Rooster that if he does not see him go in the opposite direction in this little clearing that's up above them, 
or just uh, just away a yonder bit. In the next five minutes, he will kill young Maddie Ross. Maddie, Ned, and the rest of Lucky Pepper Gang, including just a man that makes animal noises. <laughs> did you laugh at this, Luke? Why did that guy exist? He, I thought he was going to like turn into something, and he just ended up getting shot. According, <laughs> according to the script, the doctor that's with them was not a people doctor. He was a animal doctor. And that man fell off his horse and got seriously injured in the head. And instead of treating him for a concussion and brain swelling, he treated him for something different. And now he can only communicate in animal noises. It's a great story. And in, and and in the script, if you're in any bathroom, if you just go, or just run up to someone and go. <laughs> hey, and I would too, but I just want to let you know you had impressive jowl movement there. <laughs> so yeah, uh, uh, Maddie is up on this hill waiting to see if Marshall Cogburn goes through the the clearing, and sure enough, for too long, through a looking glass, Maddie sees Rooster Cogburn. On a faraway hill, firing a shot into the sky. Okay, so after that, the gang lets out. But Ned tells Chaney, stay behind with Maddie. And uh, if Chaney harms Maddie at all, Chaney's not going to get his cut of the gang's loot. <laughs> Chaney said in response. <laughs> My short rib. So the gang lets out, and a morose and gunshot Tom Chaney glares at it. The girl who shot him, wanting nothing more than to just pick her up and toss her into a nearby pit and get away from this place before Rooster brings more lawmen. Eventually, that is exactly what he decides to do. He draws a knife before he can slit Maddie's throat. Whack! Who's there? LaBeef is there to save her bacon. Hit her with a leg of lamb. Nope. With the stock of a rifle. LaBeef smacks Chaney in the head with the stock of his rifle, and Chaney goes down. Or, Maddie is relieved, but baffled. She asks the ranger how in the world he happened to get to the top of the hill to save her. And LaBeef explains that when he heard Maddie's shot down in the riverbed, he went down to investigate, and there he ran into Rooster. Cogburn outlined the plan. His part, I fear, is rash, LaBeef says. <laughs> And he points to the clearing where Rooster was just seen. The ranger is back atop the hill and has pointed his mount towards uh, the other side of the clearing. And LaBeef says, he returns for lucky Ned. And sure enough, on the other end of the clearing, Ned's gang is galloping at full speed. Until they see Rooster and they all kind of slow down. And lucky Ned calls out, what is your intention, Rooster? Do you think one on four is a dog fall? And Rooster says, I have no idea what a dog fall is, but I got a couple of tubes of a leave if you want to take care of that mouth. <laughs> now Rooster instead draws one of his six shooters and tells uh, old Ned exactly what his intentions is. He says, I mean to kill you, Ned, in one minute. Or see you hanged at Fort Smith at Judge Parker's convenience. Which will you have? And Ned Pepper laughs, cracking his 
disgusting scabies-coated mouth, saying, I call that bold talk for a one-eyed fat man, which is how my wife <laughs> tells me to go to bed every night. And I keep telling her I've got two eyes, but she's still... <laughs> and then Rooster shouts a line that truly gives me chills every time I hear it. Because he puts... Uh, he puts... He grabs the reins. He's got one gun in one hand. And he says, Fill your hand, you son of a... F-. And he puts the reins in his teeth and he grabs his other revolver with his free hand. He spurs his horse. And from the overlook, Maddie watches the brave marshal charge into the gang. And Rooster quickly t- kills two of the remaining gang members as the third one flees. Now it's just Ned and Rooster facing one another and they charge each other, or they charge at each other like, like Wild West jousting, both firing. They pass. Both of the men are unharmed, but Rooster's horse has been hit and the beast collapses, pinning the leg of the marshal as Ned turns his horse around and trots over to take the kill shot. From atop the overlook, Labeef has his carbine resting on a stump. Ned draws closer to the trapped marshal, and the ranger takes a deep breath and fires. Nothing happens for a moment as the shot is well over a hundred yards away. But then, Ned falls off his horse, dead. The ranger shot true. There's no time to celebrate the awesome shot because Chaney regains consciousness and bashes Labeef's head with a large rock. That poor man's head... (laughs) <laughs> and then he, everyone in this show is just beat to death and then he turns to pick up the rifle we dropped earlier but Maddie is quicker she grabs the gun first then turns and fires blasting a hole in the chest of the outlaw sending her father's murderer plummeting off the overlook's cliffside but the kick of the gun pushes the girl back and she trips over the edge of a sinkhole and is saved from getting a nasty crack on the head when her foot is caught in a vine She observes her surroundings for a moment and sees the skeletal remains of someone who fell down the hole earlier who was not as lucky to get their foot caught in a vine. They're very dead, because they're a skeleton. And she sees a knife on the skeleton's belt and reaches for the tattered shirt in order to pull the knife closer to her. The old, old shirt tears as if it were made of tissue paper, revealing a family of rattlesnakes living in the skeleton's ribs. They were hibernating for the winter, but Maddie's actions woke them, and she screams for help, but Labeef is still out cold. Time passes, and the snakes draw closer. Rooster finally appears at the mouth of the hole and calls down. As he does, a small rattler sinks its fangs into Maddie's hand. Rooster quickly repels down on a rope and then shoots the snake with his revolver as if permanent hearing loss would not result from shooting those revolvers 37 times in a cave that has a 10-foot diameter. And what about Ricochet? Don't yeah, I know. He's not worried about Ricochet. He shot, like, five snakes, one shot apiece, I don't th- in the dark. I don't think he was shooting at the snakes so With much as... With one eye. As so much, he wasn't shooting at the snakes so much as just trying to scare them away. And he scared them I saw away. I flying. Maddie away. Well, you get lucky. There were 3,500 snakes down in there. It was Indiana Jones' worst nightmare in that hole. Anyway, he repels down a rope, shoots a bunch of snakes, and then cuts Maddie's foot free and brings the girl in close. Maddie, or Maddie shakenly asks, Does Mr. Labeef survive? And the marshal responds, He does. Even a blow to the head could silence him for only a few short minutes. <laughs> Where are you bit? 
He then cuts an axe over the snake bite and sucks the wound, attempting to draw out the poison. Then calls up to the ranger, who has the rope tied to his saddle. Labeef pulls them both to safety, with the, and with the promise to send help to the ranger, Rooster and Maddie mount a horse and head towards civilization to get her snake bite treated. On the long ride back to civilization, Maddie begins to hallucinate and slip in and out of consciousness, and Rooster keeps pushing their horse further and further. Eventually, he pulls a knife out and stabs the horse in the rump to keep it running. I realize that there's a parallel here. Alright, at the beginning you have this man who abuses two children for torturing an animal. I'm not saying that he did anything wrong there when the Indians were poking the mule. But he does have very little sympathy for the children in that case. But over time, he finds this little girl who he comes to love in a fatherly sense. And the animal becomes just a tool to help his friend get to safety. I don't think that he would have sacrificed a good horse for anyone at the beginning of this journey. But now he is sacrificing this horse in order to save Maddie's life. And I think that's a, a beautiful kind of symmetry between or of character growth. Eventually, the horse collapses from exhaustion, and Cogburn puts the animal out of its misery and picks up Maddie and begins running. Rooster himself runs until he sees Bagby's store, then he too collapses in exhaustion, and he shoots his pistol skyward. As the lamps begin to be lit at the store and the proprietors run out to meet them, Rooster, gasping for breath, pants, I have grown old, fade to black. A train pulls into a station. A thin 40-something spinster walks out. She stops by a young boy on the street and hands him a flyer. It reads, The cool younger freak James Wild West show riding, shooting, lariat tricks. Don't leave the ladies and little ones behind. Also featuring Rooster Cogburn. He will amaze you with his skills and dash. Memphis Fairground, Sunday, 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 July 18th, 1908. The boy points her towards the show. And she walks away. We notice the woman's left sleeve is pinned up over a missing arm. Maddie's older voiceover tells us, By the time we reached Bagby's store, my hand had turned black. I was not awake when I lost the arm. The marshal had stayed with me till, or I was told until I was out of danger, but he departed before I came round. Once home, I wrote him with an invitation to come by the next time he found himself near Yale County and collect the $50 I still owed him. I did not hear back from the marshal Cogburn and he did not appear. Then one day, I received a note from the marshal with a flyer enclosed. He said he was traveling with a Wild West show, getting older and fatter. Would I like to see him when the show came to Memphis and swapped stories with an old trail mate? He would understand if the journey were too long. Brief though his note was, it was rife with misspellings. Old Matty arrives at the Wild West show and is informed that Rooster had died three days earlier and they buried him in the Confederate Cemetery in Arkansas. We then see a coffin being loaded onto a train. On the lid we read Cogburn, Yale County, hold at the station. We then see old Matty standing over a small private grave plot. The headstone reads Reuben Cogburn, 1835 to 1908 a resolute officer of Parker's Court, and inventor of a delicious sandwich that combines corned beef and sauerkraut. Is that how it happened? Mm-hmm. And then we hear, I had the body removed to our old plot. I have visited, over, I have visited it over the years. 
No doubt people talk about that. They say, well, she hardly knew the man. Isn't she a cranky old maid? It is true I have not married. I've never had time to fool with it. I heard nothing more of the Texas officer LaBeef. If he is yet alive, I'd be pleased to hear from him. I judge he would be in his 70s now, and nearer 80 than 70. I expect some of the starch has gone out of that cowlick. Time just gets away from us. And then the worst rendition of leaning on the everlasting arms I have ever heard in my entire life plays <laughs> as the movie fades to black. It almost ruins the entire movie. It's like uh, the singer sounds like Dolly Parton being hit by a car. Oh, am I wrong, Scott? That is the worst song I've ever heard in my life. No, oh, it's it's yeah, it's not good. It's like Dolly Parton. It's not good. Recorded that song in the midst of labor. <laughs> she may have. It should have just gone with the instrument. No, it's not Dolly Parton who sang it. It's some weird folk singer. But good night, that vibrato mixed with that whiny tone. Oh, they should have got Dolly. I think she deserved to get Labeef's wrath. Get her to stop singing. Let him finish what he started on her so we don't have to listen to her talk no more. All right, now we come to everybody's least favorite time of the show, where we bust oh, out the SEP scale, where Scott will give a movie he enjoys a low rating because, uh-uh. <laughs> it's a Greek word that means stinky snake. It's an acronym. Uh, stands in for four categories that we rate on a scale of, of 1 to 25 each category. First one being scriptural accuracy. This is not really one of those movies that pertain to that, so we omit the scriptural accuracy side of it uh, and move right on to entertainment value. Scott, We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Alright, I apologize. Uh, Folks, we, we had such an argument over how to rate this that I decided to pull an executive decision and just bust out the old scale of 1 to 10. <laughs> Come back to that. Hey, Scott, rate this thing on a scale of 1 to 10 for the love of Pete. Okay, 1 through 5 is unrighteous, 6 through 10 is righteous, right? I have no idea anymore. Okay, I get, I'm going to give it a 5. <laughs> I'm going to give it a five. You're going to make it unrighteous. I'm, doc- I'm giving it an unrighteous. The reason I got to do that is because of the language that's in it. Okay. Luke. Same with Scott. Giving it a five. I'm giving it a ten. <laughs> um, just because I don't want this movie to be unrighteous. <laughs> I couldn't well, see you that don't coming. have to go that high. Actually, you can give it an eight. Fine. I'll give it a nine because uh, of the language. <laughs> that's it. All right, this movie gets a 6.33 righteous rating. There we go. Boom. Interesting. And all the audience knows which one of us. It's a decent movie. It's got two bad words in it. If you see it on cable on Sunday or or on a weeknight, stop and watch it. You'll enjoy it. All right. Hey, absolutely. If you see it on cable, 
absolutely stop and watch this movie. I mean, it's better than anything John Wayne ever put out. That's now let's not get ridiculous. <laughs> In the end, we gave this thing 63%, which according to Carleton University's grading scale, that makes it a big old C. And C stands for cool. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) And like I said... And where was this from? Prophet University, home of the Thundering Whippoorwill? Nah, this is from uh, Carleton (laughs) University, uh, home of the Will Smith's cousin from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And uh, home of the Ravens. Cuckoo cacao. <laughs> That's going to do it for the Rotten Righteous podcast. I'm Zach Geiler. I'm Tom Chaney. And I'm Joseph Smith. And you're no Matty Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I'm LaBeef. I might take up LaBeef as my new name instead of you Joseph should. Smith. You should be LaBeef. Hey, LaBeef. What do you want? Four yes. men are in a hospital waiting room because their wives are having babies. And a nurse approaches the first guy and says, Congratulations, you're the father of twins. Yeah, that's weird. I work for the Minnesota Twins. And then a little while later, nurse comes to the second man and says, Congratulations, you're the father of triplets. Wasn't that odd? Answers the second man. I work for the 3M company. Nurse goes to the third man and goes, Hey, congratulations, you're having... You you just had quadruplets. He goes, Ha, how weird. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. And the last man is just groaning and banging his head against the wall. And the others turn to him and go, What's wrong? He says, I work for 7-Up. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. A harpy in trousers who I sometimes think is a ninkin poop. Well, if you would, it's nincompoop, not ninkinpoop. Ninkinpoop. I know, but you said ninkinpoop. Ninkinpoop. Not ninkinpoop. <laughs> it's nincompoop. Ninkompoop. Nin. Compoop. <laughs> I'm gonna name my next dog Nin. Compoop. <laughs> Nin compoop. Come on, compoop Nin. Ninkompoop. Come here, baby. Come here, boy. Hey, and also, if you're sitting in a bathroom anywhere, and you go, I know you. That only works if you're in a bathroom with stalls. Just if you're in a bathroom with stalls and someone's occupying one, go to the stall right next to them. Sit down, and when you hear them reach for the toilet paper, just go, hey, I know you. Thank you.